Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Hey everyone, happy new year. Uh, We're one week in. Uh, I don't know if any of you are already flagging on those old resolutions, but um, I love all the cheesy reflection of last year uh, and looking forward to the new year, probably because I end up doing a lot of the things that I say I will. So it's a great sort of high five moment Um, and allows me to think about what's possible for the new year. Um, So today we've got Phil. Phil Askew, I'm so excited about this interview coming up. Um, We're going to delve into how your past experiences show up in your current relationships, thinking about codependency. uh, And there seems to be a theme about um, men that I interview talking about what it means to be a man, masculinity, uh, showing up as vulnerable and asking for help. I'm really excited about this one. Happy New Year. You can do it. Welcome, everyone, to the Adversity to Advantage um, podcast. I'm so privileged today to welcome uh, Phil Askew, a a dear friend, um, someone who's coached me at one point in my life, a a tricky point in my life. And and what he does is he helps conscious entrepreneurs and startups to find their true purpose and direction in an unmistakable and profoundly compelling way. He helps them ensure healthy success, fulfillment, and powerful, positive change for people and the planet. Welcome, Phil. Mm, thanks. Wow, that that was pretty good. Yeah. It was good, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just noticed hearing that back. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah profound. That's what I do. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, so, so what, what did I not say? Uh, what are you most passionate about? Sort of in that big sentence and work that you do. Yeah, it was a big sentence, and actually, I think if I'm if I'm thinking about it, where as you said that, the impact on me was that actually, what does it all boil down to? If it was one word, and that'd be purpose. You know, that'd be uh, so. What really matters to me in my life and what really matters to you in your life and I think that's uh I think when we kind of put ourselves over in the position of being in service and having a purpose it's kind of like that's everything for me it's like that's where life is that's where fulfillment comes and I know you started your career in in a sort of a different industry and developed into uh, coaching and and having purpose as as the core element of of what you do, and I guess finding your own purpose. Give us a little bit of just history, like what led you to this this place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I suppose just a quick whistle-stop tour was that uh, starting at school, actually, what I noticed, I had this conversation the other day with somebody where it's funny how at these fundamental times in our lives we make decisions about the path we're going to take, I guess on a kind of emotional level, because I remember sitting in a maths class and the teacher said to me, uh, it was awful, you know, early 80s maths class, can you imagine? Um, <laughs> the teacher said to me, Phil, you're pretty useless at maths, aren't you? And I was like, whoa, that really stung. It really hurt. And, and being young, not knowing how to process that or to do something with it or to make a decision that she was wrong. She was an elder, and I assumed she was right. So what I did was say, 
internally, right, I'm going to pursue the other path. I'm going to go the other polarity and I'm going to become creative. Away from logic, away from maths, away from this thing that you tell me I'm awful at. And so I kind of then started to flourish. I was already quite artistic anyway, but I started to flourish and pursue the path of being a creative um, and artistic, you know, and pursuing GCSE in art and, and just actually leaving behind all that academia stuff, which I was apparently useless at. Um, and that kind of, uh, I pursued that path and carried on and it became, it became my formative years in terms of what I chose to do at college. And I went on and studied graphic design and, at that time, there was no internet or no, no kind of a digital form of creativity in that way. Um, and I was lucky enough to kind of intersect with the arc of, of the web exploding, you know, in the early 90s after I'd been a graphic designer for a while. Um, still being a creative, but always having this kind of um, tickle of fascination for personal development and esoteric, uh, you know, I would be looking at astrology and palm reading and all of the mysticism that existed out in the world. I was always fascinated by, you know, what was out there in the world, aside from, you know, the stuff that we could see. Um, so a kind of closet hippie and not so much closet. Maybe. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. un- un-closet. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Maybe I'm not closet at all. I wasn't. But, um, but interesting I, I, that, that what, what the teacher said is what you're saying is stuck in your mind and has impacted that entire sort of path that you've taken yourself on. Yeah, it certainly was in the formative years. As I say, that was like, uh, I, I was maybe seven or eight, I think. And, you know, it just really landed and it really stuck. Because I know so much of being a child is about attaining love or finding love and acceptance. And being in a place where, okay, so I am, I am loved and I'm accepted for who I am doing this thing. And I just knew that when I heard that from her, it was like, I'm going to come away from this territory. It's far too painful. And I think moving forward, you know, skipping forwards a few years, I, I pursued the creative direction. I loved it. And it was fascinating. And uh, I was good at it, you know, and I started to escalate up the ranks. And I was in the, as I say, the dot-com revolution where it was kind of everything exploded and people were throwing champagne and all sorts of stuff at us, investors, you know. It's like, give me a website. I need a website. And it was like, um, what do you want on it? We don't care. We just need this. I've bought the URL and throw me something up. And Basically, we could do no wrong in those days, you know, um, and uh, it, 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 we were bought by another company um, and basically we were absorbed into the belly of the beast of this huge PR company and uh, I became a creative director with a team of people um, and I was plucked out of the same team and I became the lead in that team. So it was kind of interesting dynamic. These were all my friends and suddenly I was in a position where I was in charge of them uh, and I had to be the boss. And it was interesting because I had to kind of tell them what to do and I had to be a friend to them as well and, and balance those things out when there were difficult times, difficult conversations. Um, That's a really tricky um, transition to find yourself in. And, mm-hmm. and I'm curious, the, 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 the impact that that teacher had, I'm curious about the impact of, of parents or, or the rest of the, the education system, siblings. Give, mm-hmm. give us a little bit of context of what it was like growing up and do you think you were sort of prepared for the real world? Mm, so, uh, wow, you're going into a <laughs> into a, a rich place, rich territory. That's what we yeah, love, so, Phil. That's exactly <laughs> what we do. You know, it's like, wow, nothing light over this corner. Um, so, yeah, I, actually growing up was fine. Growing up was fine. I didn't have any siblings. I uh, was... Um, 
I was always sensitive. I was to the environment. I was always able to really absorb and to feel into what was happening in the room, into the space. And I have subsequently learned that at an early age, I um, was witnessing codependency. So, like, my mum and dad were very much in a codependent relationship. Um, and it was very – and I think the, the parents of that era – uh, really were as well. You know, it was very like the father goes out and does the work and the the wife, uh, the female stays in and she looks after the house. You know, there's a very archetypal um, kind of shadow that exists in that time period, I believe, you know, ge- generationally, the consensus reality and how adults should be, you know. And I guess I was at the uh, corner of that triangle where I was witnessing that relationship, which was loving, of course, it was loving. They stayed together. But it was also very, um, there was dysfunction in it. And what I noticed from a really early age was I was, um, I felt like I put myself into the role of needing to resolve it. But I was just a five or six-year-old. So, like, so the sort of peacemaker? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm. If you look at like the Enneagram, for instance, um, the Enneagram is like an amazing assessment tool. Um and I'm a nine, which is literally called the peacemaker. Well, believe. there you go. The peacekeeper. And yeah. interesting how young you were when, when that sort of role began to form for you. Yeah, I had to become an adult pretty quick. Um, what That's what I noticed in hindsight, having gone through therapy and exploring those early days. I had to become an adult fairly quick because life was amazing and fun and playful. And I was this little mini astronaut and I used to love running around and um, playing with Action Man with other people. What I noticed was I hit a certain age where I think I became really aware of my parents' dynamic and needing to, and it, it changing slightly, and me stepping up and, and making it about me. Was it me that kind of instigated that? Why is it not fun anymore? What happened? How can I fix this? But of course, I'm a little guy who has no tools, but just a lot of love for his parents and wanting to make a difference. So yeah, and I think that maybe also formulated a path for me from that point on in pursuit of psychology. And there was no coaching at the time, but psychology and all manner of understanding human beings along in parallel with design, with creativity. And so I'm, I'm curious about how that role of, of peacemaker that formed at a really early age, sort of out of necessity um, mm-hmm. in order to survive and look after yourself, how that uh, sort of impacted your personality, shall we say, or your interactions with with people, relationships, any kind of conflict, I guess, growing up through school uh, and beyond. Yeah, so uh, as I evolved as a human being, I I became very um, aware and sensitive to other people's needs, and I was... Somebody who wasn't particularly sure of my own identity in those days. I didn't know my value aside from being a rescuer from somebody who helps others. And when I was helping others, I was valuable. So I misinterpreted receiving love for giving help and assistance and love. Um, And so my role or my identity was solely about making people happy. And that kind of flourished to a place where I recognized I was pretty good at making people laugh. Um, and, so and people I, will love having that around, right? So, my goodness, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so I was like, "Wow, I'm being loved for this, not so much for the maths, but I'm being loved yeah, yeah. for being after." You know, um, people want me around, and um, purely for the fact that I make them laugh. Well, that was a decision I made. That was that was what I witnessed, and the 
and the kind of choice that I make. So I must be really good at being funny. So and people, people, people don't always see the, the humor side of things as a survival mechanism for us. The, the, the people that um, bring that sort of joy, it really is coming from often coming from a place of survival. How do I fit into a group? How do I belong? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was survival, actually. I mean, I was I'm pretty lucky because I'm tall. I'm like six foot four. So I was never bullied. Uh, and I was never really um, put in a position where I felt like the underdog, which is really lucky. You know, I, I think I think we're such we're such basic creatures on some level, like the physicality of me being giant does not mean I am <laughs> like a Viking, you know, it meant I was, I was, uh, I was ominous in, in terms of my size, but I certainly wasn't, uh, aggressive or, you know, I'm not a warrior that's going to battle everybody who attempts to bully me. But it's so interesting how that didn't even come into the equation. Um, I think building on that, what was fascinating for me is I didn't even recognize how big a guy I was for many years. I felt I was I was meek, I was loving, I was funny, I was kind. Um, and you and do I, have all that energy about you in your sort of tall, you know, physicality. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, someone called me a gentle giant or the, a big friendly giant, you know. <laughs> I was like, I'm a giant? What do you mean? I didn't recognize that until I was maybe 17 or 18. And, and what I noticed was I was also stooping as well. I wasn't owning my space. I wasn't owning my size. Uh, so through doing a lot of Making yourself small. Yeah, hiding. Being, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not a threat. It's all right. Yeah, everything's yeah. Fine. yeah everything's and, fine. and it's really coming from that that hypersensitivity to people around you let me mm. let me um sort of adjust myself in order to fit with what they need so that they'll like me exactly no rough edges no sharp edges here and particularly as i was moving into relationships so i first started dating i guess when i was around about 17 or so um i really started to continue and perpetuate the role I saw with my parents as in like I became my mum's role which was the the all loving you know um uh, I'll do anything for you whatever you need I'm here to make sure your life is wonderful and to provide safety provide love 24 7 and if I was doing that I felt good i felt like valuable in relationship and and for our, our listeners um this all sounds pretty cool you like you're a nice guy and you're impacting the world in a nice way and you sounds like you've got friends i mean what was the the dark side or the negativity of of this sort of behavior mm, i noticed how triggered i was when you just said nice he was the nice guy <laughs> what, was, what was that what was the tri- what was the trigger what did it bring up for you yeah, well, it was like, that was exactly it. Yeah, I could do nice. You know, that was dead easy. It was no problem. But I had range. I'm a human being. Sometimes I got angry. But angry wasn't allowed, not not within the gamut of Phil Askew. You know, it's like, no, no, he doesn't do angry. You know, he's he's the oracle loving guy who holds everybody indefinitely. And I was like, well, you know, F that. I <laughs> Actually, sometimes I do get angry. But but that was the thing I didn't get angry. It all went internally. And it started to turn into a place of deep self-reflection and almost like a downward spiral of, well, what do I do with this? Um, it's not okay to get loud, to get um, shouty, to actually even talk about the fact that I might be pissed off with something. Um, it was not okay. It, it Phil doesn't do that. 
and yeah. and where you're saying it was not okay, but it sounds yeah. like that was very much an internal rule rather than an external one. Have yeah. I got that right, or or did you feel like there was an external element as well that people couldn't handle the the maybe angry other sides of you? Um. I didn't want people to go away. I didn't want to scare people off. You know, that was the pattern that I'd grown up with. That, and, I, and certainly I didn't see, I didn't see violence or I did not see uh, loud voices or hear loud voices or anything growing up. It was just not on the, uh, my radar for a, a thing that I could get hold of and utilize. And it was often seen as negative. So if ever, you know, um, if ever we sort of saw loud voices or arguments or things like that it was was seen as something that you don't do you know we don't do that in our family kind of thing so it's fascinating to know that um as i did more self-development work so much of my path and my process was first of all understanding who i was as a man owning my manness because i noticed that in relationships um the girls that i was seeing they wanted to see that. They wanted to see my err, my manness. You know? <laughs> yeah. Err. <laughs> <laughs> we like a bit of that. <laughs> my errness. Exactly. Exactly. We like a bit of that. Yeah. And I was like, do you really? That's what you want to see? Um, it's like, you, don't, you don't want that kind of stuff? Yeah, we want that. But we also want this too, you know? How confusing for you. Very confusing. <laughs> because because I've, I've never been shown that. I, di- I didn't know what that looked like. And actually I was... And actually, I kind of collapsed it in with, well, if I'm being like that, will that not appear to be violent? Will that not appear to be aggressive? And people will move away from that, and girls will move away from that. And there's that extreme sort of stereotype side as well that we view men, you know, as having. Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly didn't want to be collapsed in with that, you know, with with those who are, uh, are abusive. So, So quite sort of black and white thinking, Sort of nice guy or violent rather than like, oh, what's yeah. this, this range? Like the language that you use now is so sort of colorful. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting you point that out. It, it was very polar back then. It was very contrast. Uh, I think this is how we do it. And I'd made up this is how I be a good guy, a good man. This is how we don't do it. You know, this is what we try and avoid at all costs. And anything that vaguely resembles this over here, which is the, like the dark side of being a man and being big and physical, um, we avoid at all costs. We just do not go there. We shut it down. We internalize any of that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, and then as I said to you, I was exploring my masculinity because I knew that I was a man and I knew that I was heterosexual and I knew that, wow, I'm showing up in a really strange way in relationships. You know, I'm, I'm showing up in a place which is really undermining myself, really downplaying my manness, my masculinity. Um, they want to see it. I want to see it. Why am I doing that? What's happening? And it sounds, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're looking back on it with great hindsight um, mm. and, and noticing that process through all the self-development that you've done. Mm. I imagine when you were in it, though, it was very, like, experimental, confusing. Oh, I do this and she doesn't like it. I do that and she's, you know, backs off or she engages. Sort of, it, it, it wouldn't have been as clear-cut, I imagine. No, it definitely was like a, a relationship teaches us so much if we're willing to be open and receive it. 
And if we were able to actually see it, what I noticed was that being in the relationship, I was not able to see that as data or usable experience because I was so immersed in it. You know, it's the water I swam in. So it wasn't until I'd, I'd broken up from a few relationships, which, which had repetitive patterns that I was stepping into, always the same thing. I was a rescuer. Uh, they uh, were in the relationship um, to be a victim role. It was like, I need rescue. And I'm like, great, I'm here to rescue you. Awesome. Let, here's a project that will never be fixed. Um, so what I noticed was I pulled out of, when I pulled out of the relationship and started doing work around myself and actually who am I, full range, full permission, who am I? Um, without the stories from my mom and dad and without growing up and all those those stories that came with it, accumulating all the data, I like how you refer to uh, relationships as data. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that in my head now in the data and saying, this is just more data for my experiment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, please don't think I'm like, you know, a cyborg. No, no, uh, I love it. That's how I view things at the moment because yeah. I'm newly back into data and going, hmm, I wonder, why did I behave that way? I wonder why, what I was responding to, what was I triggered by? Yeah, there's an interesting place around dating, I find, after you... So I kind of burnt through, I want to say that I burnt through a lot of that old me, the codependent me. Um, I read some great books, and one called Codependent No More, um, and yeah, a bunch of others, actually. Um, but what I, what I was very aware of, like, I, I dive deep into, into therapy as well around how I want to be in relationship um, with a partner. I wanted a partner. I wanted somebody who was... Not just a victim that you had to rescue. Uh, yeah, I wanted to, if you think the physicality of it, it will be standing shoulder to shoulder facing the future together, enjoying the project of living, yeah, as opposed to it being about, okay, you need help, I'm a damn good helper, let's get this on. Yeah. I was, and I'm curious about in those patterns of relationships, you're playing mm. this rescuer role, what did you do with your down days or your overwhelming feelings or rage or whatever it might have been, even if it was, you know, beneath the surface? I, I just because I find that when we internalize things and I'm, I've been the master at internalizing everything, unfortunately, it pops up in random ways. And that can range right from, you know, our physical health being impacted um, right through to depressive symptoms or, uh, you know, it popping up in, 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 in aggression in other ways. I don't know what, what showed up for you. Mm. Uh, so I saw a habit, I saw a theme actually, and I, I think my mum also did it too, and that was to overeat. Yeah, and I, I, I you know, yeah, food, yeah food there's always is, something, right? Yeah, food is, is 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 the great giver. It's like I know that if I'm going to eat that thing, it's going to give me this. It's predictable, you know. Um, I knew a lot of I knew a lot of tech guys in the in the internet industry, and uh, not very off track too much there. But I noticed that you know human beings can be ultra complex and unpredictable. And what I've noticed with some tech guys is they can be so into the tech because it's ultra predictable and reliable. And if you're a coder, it's like, I know that if I put that there, that, that happens. It's, it's safe. Yeah. I heard you sort of say safe there. Absolutely. So what I noticed coming back to me for a moment was, yeah, I overate. And I also started to get into a hole of melancholy and I, I really loved the landscape of melancholy and, um, poetry and wow isn't life difficult it's so sad you know and i would almost feel like this these hands on my shoulder of this i used to call it the wet gray goblin which was my inner critic you know and he would get on my shoulders and he'd be like hey phil man you know 
life is like this. Go and read some poetry, and <laughs> you know, and uh, life's start, hard. Stop noticing the sadness. Look, see, there's a dead bird on the floor. Sport. <laughs> what is occurring in this life? You know, it it just went on and on like that, and and actually that was familiar territory for me. Yeah, and and maybe an acceptable identity of like melancholy poet, uh, you know, that sort of thing, which was still maybe safer than aggressive, you know, all that stuff, rage, those sorts of um, emotions. It was hugely familiar as well. Yeah. So, so that was the land that I lived in a lot when I was younger, I guess being an only child as well. I had a lot of friends, but being an only child, you know, when, when, when you come home after school or after playing, it's like you're on your own pretty much. So I became very kind of, um, imaginative i suppose yeah and so in this theme of um adversity and and you've you've talked me through uh, so many things that have impacted uh who you are um i refer to the the idea of a rock bottom or a crash or something that can sometimes be a blessing for people because it wakes them up um mm. in a way people that have rock bottoms can can sometimes be privileged because it shakes them up to to shift or to change. I mean, can you identify with that term at all within within your life? Mm, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, when you talk about rock bottom, what what I notice the the big uh, the big one that really comes to the surface is losing my dad, and then a couple of years later, losing my mum as well. And I think always, you know, that is a, such a huge monumental event. Losing somebody you love in your life, huge. Um, but when it's a parent, I think it's it's fundamentally ground-shaking. You know, the actual foundations of, of who you are and what it is that you base your entirety on shifts. It changes. It has to. Your identity is no longer interconnected with this human being which gave birth to you. I mean, it is on an energetic level always, you know, they taught us how to be human beings, uh, or taught us how to be adults even, for better, for worse, but not having them around anymore was a, a foundational shift for me in terms of, well, who am I? Who am I? And what do I care about? What is, what is, who am I? What is my mission in this life? Yeah. And interesting, we sort of went down this path right after you reflected on being an only child and sort of coming home and, and being on your own and needing to nurture your, your imagination in a way. Mm-hmm. And then picturing you sort of losing your parents, it just without any siblings around, there is sort of a stark image of, you know, who am I without that sort of anchor into my past? Or I, I imagine you had other relatives, but um, I mean, I, I have 10 siblings, you know, um, mm. so, that, so there's, there's always somebody there if, if you want to think about um, parents or, you know, so mm-hmm. it just strikes me as... Um, quite lonely or isolating to work through that mm-hmm. yeah and it really was um and i'm only just in the last few years pulling out of this sort of the quagmire of, of of that kind of dynamic i guess um it was never I, I i've always been lucky to have a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues around me who are so supportive and so available but i think one of the components that i, I make up of being a man was it was incredibly difficult to ask for help in the emotional landscape, in the emotional realm. Um, you know, I can ask you to, you know, my, my mate John, I can ask him to come around and help me put this shelf up. That is a justifiable reason. 
I need this shelf to be on the wall. Look, man, you can help me. Come, use your muscles with yeah, me. Bring your we tools. Use tools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have my nails, we have shelf. Look, congrats. Let's <laughs> grab beer. So I am man. <laughs> that was super easy. That was dead easy. In that realm of asking for help, no problem at all. Um, when they, and giving help, no matter what anybody else wants. Of course. I was, wow, I was amazing at that. You know, sure, I'll sweep in. I'm on holiday, but I'll come back and rescue you. No problem. Great. Do you love me now? (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was when it came to me sitting with my grief, being in a place of losing my, well, first my dad and then my mom, it was like, man, this is difficult, you know, because I can ask for help, but it's not going to bring them back. So what is the point of asking for help? What is the purpose of asking for help? And so burning through that or working with a therapist around that, and at the time of grief, when I was thick in the in the wave of grief, of losing mum, actually, the this, this second of my parents, um, what became really apparent, and, and a great kind of metaphor, I guess, that, that my therapist gave me at the time, she said, well, Phil, you don't have to ask um, for anything from these people. They won't bring your parents back, of course, but you can just ask for them to come around and to make tea for you to just be present. And the, the place that really struck me was just ask them to be blankets, yeah? So they come over to your place and they just wrap themselves around you and, and hold you in this place which is like a blanket. And that was like, whoa, that really hit home. It's like, yeah, that I can do, that I can ask for. And, and were you able to? I imagine at the beginning it would have just been mm-hmm. tricky, but of course you have close friends, you have people, it's mm-hmm. just... Almost rec- it's almost like you recognized what it is you could ask for anyway. How do mm. I connect with what I need and then ask for it um, in mm. a way that, that suits you? Mm. Yeah, in a way which felt uh, like I wasn't burdening them with my grief, with my emotional trauma. Because I was, I was very aware of other people and not wanting to laden them with stuff. No, I was expert at not doing this, you know, holding back, reserving stuff that wasn't theirs. And so due to the enormity of the grief that I was immersed in, that I was feeling, I honestly felt that if I were to share that with somebody else, that would impart them, impart it over to them. It's like, here, I have some of my grief. So they would hold, they would have the heaviness of it. So you would be impacting them sort of negatively. Exactly, yeah. That they would be feeling it to the degree that I was immersed in that grief as well. And that was the last thing I wanted to do to anybody, as if I could do anything to anybody, you know. Right. Yeah. But when I said, hi, <laughs> would you mind, I'm really struggling, would you mind coming over and being a blanket for an hour or so? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, for some reason, had a, had a real logic about it. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And I did. And what I discovered in that process of asking for help being a, you know, a big guy who was now very aware of his masculinity, um, being able to do that was, was magnificent because, you know, asking for help is, to be the receiver of somebody who's asking for help, I personally find it um, such a privilege that they would trust me with uh, believing that I can help them. You know, it was like, wow, so I can actually help this person out. What an honor that you'd ask me for that help. And, and you've obviously moved into, I'm jumping ahead a bit, you've, you're in a helping profession uh, mm. now, and I, I'm curious about how easy it is for you to ask, or how do you ask for help now? Mm. Mm. Um, hmm. 
So I am in a helping profession, and what's fascinating is that, yeah, I had to be very careful as I was entering into the realm of being, being a coach, which is, in effect, a catalyst for change for other people to help them step into lives that they that they could be living which is based on fulfillment and joy and pleasure and fun and happiness so i had to be very careful of straddling that fine line between slipping into the default mode of uh, codependent rescuer and somebody who is actually genuinely and healthily so providing help for this individual or rather providing the fertile territory for them to be able to do their work so um coming back to your question where you said you know how do i ask for help now i now i feel absolutely clean about asking for help i feel great you know it's like yeah absolutely i ask for help it's it's a muscle that i've had to build but it also easily flexes as well as the you know the right arm now it easily flexes as well as the left arm it's not just this you know wizened tiny arm which hangs to my side and never gets seen in the daylight you know <laughs> there's a there's a balance now and it's such a healthy balance of of give and take and exchange of energy it's like you know you, we have to ask for help it's we are tribal beings you know we're tribal humans um we can be the lone wolf and survive out in the world, but it's pretty darn lonely. You know, why would we choose to do that? If I ask for help from somebody who I trust, who I know is going to be able to give me that help, why would I not do that? This is obviously resonating with me um, hugely uh, just because I started off as a, a therapist and, and a coach and I, and I do training. And so it's all about people. It's about uh, helping. And I can recognize that at the beginning, uh, you know, all of this was a bit of a mask in order to cover up the, the sort of dark, sordid past and the challenges that I've faced, the adversity that I've faced, because if I could just put a neat enough package and enough, you know, letters after my name, um, mm. I would be worth something in the world, you know. Um, yeah. If I could just help enough people, you know, um, I would matter or there would be a fucking point, you know. Um, mm. And it's been a really interesting journey of recognizing the, the friendships that I need in my life and also the, the equality that I'm looking for which is give and take and really being able to receive support. And since um, recently being, being divorced and being back in sort of um, the dating world and just experimenting with, oh, what is this emotion? Hmm, is this what loneliness feels like? Just sort of questioning. It's been a really interesting learning curve um, mm -hmm. of just going, hey, I, I matter just as I am. And I feel that confidence and that connection and have, you know, great people in, in my life such as you. But it's, mm -hmm. but it's just such a hard thing still um, to, to ask for help. And I'll, I'll sometimes go through my day and absolutely uh, work my ass off and, have, and be doing amazing things and sort of cry in my kitchen on my own because the physical overwhelm has just gotten too much, you know? And yeah not allow people to see that side. But then I will pick up the phone and go, so that was tough 24 hours ago. Um, and now things are better, right? And I'm trying to get better at going, hey, here's the messy me as well. This mm. is the falling apart me that doesn't always have it together. And I mm. find that when I am able to do that, um, the connection that you get from humans is just profound because they've got that side too. 
Yeah, I love what you're saying. Yeah, that's so beautiful. <clears throat> it's like real time mess. Here it is. What do you make of that? Real you time, know? exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, if I could just have twelve hours distance, <laughs> it feels yeah. just like I, you know I can put a little you know a little bow on yeah. it. You know. Yeah, yeah. We can put it over there and go. Yeah, but don't worry. I've moved on from that now. Yeah, I'm cool now. I'm not that mess anymore, but look at her. My God, she needs help, right? God, that was a mess. She could have yeah. asked look, for help. Yeah. Look at me now. I'm pretty damn cool now, right? I'm, yeah, so I'm I spend the, you know, the 80-20 rule. I do 80% <laughs> of the time going, so, but yeah, I'm cool. That's in the past. Everything's fine. Um, just to keep some distance. Anyway, that was my inspired rant based on your no, story. I, yeah, and, and that is so pertinent, I think, in... Uh, you know, it, it will be so easy for us to go into the realm of like talking about what it is to be a modern man, a man in modern society, rather. And how are we supposed to be? Uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, because men cry, I cry as well, of course. Um, and being with emotion is something which, you know, thanks to the, the personal work I do and also with the work I do with my clients and, and the teams I work with. It's, it's like emotion is it's like when you have the urge to sneeze, you know, you wouldn't stop yourself sneezing necessarily. Uh, for fear of what people might judge you as. Uh, tears are just the same thing. Emotion is just liquid coming from the eyes. And it's um, not to sound too cheesy, but with this line, it's energy in motion. It genuinely is something that wishes to shift. And it's a natural thing that the body is wanting to do, shifting an emotion so that new can come in, so that fresh can come into the into your awareness. Yeah, just um, release. Uh, yeah. and, and it allows for connection and i know that in in the talks that i do uh and 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 the work that i do with with groups mm. it's the tears and the story connected to the audience's purpose and what they c- sort of can get out of it um mm. that that really creates impact so mm. i i want to show that um sort of authentic uh naked side but mm. I'm, I'm working harder at going okay, it wasn't just that was fucked up and now this is perfect. And that's part of the purpose of this podcast is I want to know what people are struggling with now and what the, the tips and the tools that they, 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 the routines that they have to put in place now in order to support, you know, what they know about themselves. For, for example, the codependency or uh, the rescuer, these, these sort of peacemaker titles that, that you've given yourself. Yeah. Um, do you have uh, routines or, or things that you try and fit in your life just to ensure your own well-being and that you can sustain all this, this sort of level of learning? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I think so much of the time, physicality is a big one. Physicality is a big one because I think as men uh, out in the world, the only way that we're allowed to physically express ourselves are through sport I think that's an accepted norm. It's like, great, I can go and shout my head off at a football match or I can go and roar, uh, you know, on, on the dance floor at a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> that's acceptable. With alcohol. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. I was going <laughs> to say, or if I'm fueled with booze, anything's acceptable, you know. Yeah. Oh, I was drunk. You know, that's not me. Again, putting that, that version of you over in the corner, that was him. He was drunk, you know. But we're physical beings, you know, and we used to be hunters, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, we used to be hunters. We have an energy about us and a physicality that wants to express itself. Um, we have a body. We have this physical thing, which is uh, we are not just this brain, which is encased within this vehicle carrying us around. We are everything, you know, in our physicality. And it's as vital as our brain and our intelligence and our thinking. Um 
a long story short, I discovered five rhythms, and uh, I practice five rhythms now every Wednesday. Um, Tell people what that is for the ones that don't know. Yeah, it's a good thing to to try and describe it in words. is an interesting one, but it's. Um, <laughs> I would say it's loosely, uh, on a basic level, it's a moving meditation. Um, so it's like a two-and-a-half-hour group moving meditation where you go through different uh, rhythms. You go through different uh, tempos. And in the process of doing that, you move your body in a way which is how your body wants to move in that moment. It's not predefined. You're not following a, um, a pattern as you might do in, in uh, yoga, for instance. You're not following a routine, but you are truly expressing what it is your body is wanting to do in that moment so your own intuition yeah you're following your body's wisdom uh both with yourself and with others so you are encouraged to connect with others and and dance with them um and then you're encouraged to come back into yourself again there are no rules around it you don't have to strictly do what it is that they are saying so what i love about five rhythms is the freedom and the safety of the container of the room that you're able to fully express the physicality. Like I'm able to be a six foot four Viking man roaring in the center of the room to mad fast, you know, techno that's happening in, in one of the particular ways. And, and people are actively gravitating towards me because I'm doing that. And it's like, man, I can be this wild man with like full range and full permission and, you know, people want that. It's like more, and they're gravitating in to, to pick up on the energy of that. And, um, and nobody's drinking, right? And nobody's drinking, no. <laughs> no. To drink would, would actually feel completely wrong because it takes away from the experience of it. You can't, you can't fully engage with what it is that you're with, and you can't witness the energy in the room if you were to have had a drink, yeah? So it's such an interesting collapse that's happened over over the years, which is... In order to do that, in order for my barriers to come down, I need to be drunk. It's not true at all. In order to do that, you need to feel safe. Mm. You need to not feel vulnerable. And when you're in the space, which is beautifully held and and structured like a five rhythms uh, dance floor, my goodness, what you feel capable of because nobody's judging you is immense. It's absolutely immense. It feels to me like coming back to my true self, my true physicality, and my um, full permission to be me. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. Um, so we're, we're almost coming to the end of, of our discussion. I feel like we could, we could talk all day. Um, what, what advice would you give to, to somebody who's, who's struggling or say your younger self when you were um, grappling with, with grief or relationship or um, sort of what, what advice would you give? So I want to say do the work at becoming your own parent. So do the work. So I had to do the work around um, becoming Phil, the adult, Phil, the loving parent towards my inner child. And in doing that process, um, I'm not yearning for the type of parenting that my parents couldn't give me. And I'm also not yearning externally for the kinds of things that my girlfriend, uh, I expect her to give me. I can give all of those things to myself through building that relationship, through being the adult Phil, giving loving and attention and conversation to the inner little Phil. Yeah. That's the most important, I would say. So, so deep. And it enables, uh, that image flashback that you described of, um, when you're in relationship with, with a partner, you're sort of both facing out into the world, uh, sort of together. And I imagine that you're, you giving yourself what you need. And if they're able to do that as well, you can have true partnership. Absolutely. Like one of the things I want to say is that I, that is what I do with my clients. Also, it's like 
coming home to self, you know, purpose is all about coming home to self beyond the um, expectations of who you are, beyond the expectations of your job role. It's like, who are you behind that which you are acting in the world? Who are you? And how do you bring that to the surface, both as an individual and both as a member of a team, as a member of a system? It really does sound like all of your, your adversity has sort of led to uh, the person that you are in, in your coaching and, and the purpose that you have and, and how you give back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think we really have to be willing to do our own work to, to discover. We're, you know, we, we just, our ultimate purpose and expression of purpose is for us to be who we are, full permission, full range, you know. And so I'm hoping that my work brings people back to themselves so that they can truly own their own skin. It's like, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is my mission in life. So, and then the, the thing I want to leave our listeners with is if there's one thing that you take from this podcast, it's, it's do the work, um, learn, learn about yourself, uh, understand yourself and then practice, connect, take action. That's what I'm taking from sort of that little line. Love it. Absolutely. Really great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this time as well. No, it's, it's been- so good. So where can people find you if they, they want to find you online, social media, or your website, what, if they want to work with you, where can they find you? Yeah, so uh, I th- luminouslives.com is my website, uh, and there you can read all about the work I do with entrepreneurs and those people going out into the world, making a difference, and also about the team coaching and um, the team experiences and the workshops I do up there as well. And I also do talks in companies, and I do like lunch and learns around finding purpose in the workplace. It's like, who am I in this noisy environment? How do I find my identity, and how do I thrive in this place? Especially as the world of work is um, changing. So many people are asking those questions. Oh, yeah. Especially the millennials. Yeah. Huge, huge. Um, Thank you so much. We'll we'll add all of those details into uh, the podcast notes. Um, Mm. It's always a privilege to to be in your presence, Phil. Um, Mm. It's great to hear some of your story and to be connected through through our adversity. Thank you so much. Mm, Thank you. It's been wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsboer.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.